we want to thank you for taking time out of your busy schedules to join us on the JF Podcast. It is our hope that this most recent talk teaches you, inspires you, and challenges you to live the life you were designed to live. If this message has helped you in some way, help someone else by sharing it. And if you want more information about who we are, what we do, or you'd like to contribute to our community, you can find us at JolietNaz.org. Thanks so much for listening. Well, thank you so much for being here today. Um, It's good to have you here with us. I want to add my greetings to those of Dan and... um, I should introduce myself for those of you who I think the monitors may be causing that. Um, Not that. (laughs) Thank you for being here. Um, I want to introduce myself. My name is Jeannie. I'm one of the pastors here at Joliet First. And um, Pastor Brad and his family have been on vacation, as uh, Dan said, and hopefully they are returning feeling refreshed and renewed, and mostly, hopefully, they're returning. Um, (laughs) At least from my perspective, from my perspective. Um, I want to welcome you to this. This is the second week in our series, The Body of Your Dreams. And so last week I asked you, have you ever stood in front of the mirror and imagined what it would be like to have the body of your dreams? And then I told you that you can, in fact, have the body of your dreams right now, and you don't even have to give up ice cream or frou-frou coffee drinks, you can tell what are my favorite things, or whatever, you know, whatever food you like to eat that doctors frown upon. You don't have to give any of that up to have the body of your dreams. Well, the body, of course, that I'm talking about is the body of Christ or the church. So, um, and we learned last week that our body was lacking some definition, and so we put some definition around, and we learned that each one of us is an important part of the body, and we each have a role to play and a purpose, and that God has put each part just where he wants it. And I challenge you to do something and to be a fully functioning organ and part of the body. This week, we're going to learn how to love our body. But let me tell you, I struggled with this message this week. In fact, I said to Ron, my husband, I was like, man, I'm just, I'm struggling. I feel like everything that can be said about this passage has already been said. And he said, well, then repeat it because we need to hear things more than once. So that's where we're going today. But in the meantime, before we go, go there, would you please pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you for your never-failing, never-giving-up love for us. We ask now that you would quiet our hearts and quiet our minds, open our ears, and help us to listen to what your Spirit has to say to us today. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So, when I was in high school... One of my favorite movies was this classic. And, you know, not, not like Gone with the Wind kind of classic, more like cult classic, The Princess Bride. I mean, we're talking, we're talking classic, great movie. This is a movie, though, that people either love or they hate. There's like no middle ground in this movie. And 
what I and others of my generation really love so much about it is the multitude of great quotable lines and humorous things that are, that are in this movie. And so the story starts out with the two main characters, Wesley and Buttercup. And they're on this, you know, they're on this farm. And um, Wesley is a, is a farmhand. He, he works for Buttercup. And she's really not very nice to him. Um, she's not as sweet as I am. She's very demanding, and she orders him around. And she never calls him by his name. She always calls him farm boy. And she'll say, farm boy, do this. Or farm boy, do, you know, whatever. And Wesley always responds in the same way, and he says, as you wish. And then the story progresses a little further, and Buttercup comes to this great realization that whenever Wesley says, as you wish, he's actually saying, I love you. Why he couldn't just say, I love you, I don't know. But, and in that moment, Buttercup realizes that she loves him too. And then, and then all other kinds of things continue with tragedy and challenge and and eventually we get to one of the best scenes in the movie which is the wedding scene where Prince Humperdinck which by the way I just love to say Humperdinck (laughs) Humperdinck Humperdinck okay um where Prince Humperdinck is trying to marry Buttercup and there is this um priest who's officiating the wedding ceremony and he has a, a bit of a speech impediment. And <laughs> so, and he, um, let's just say, he doesn't know how to make anything short. He's a, he's a true preacher. Um, he, can, he can go on and on and on and on and on. And so he does this, and he's just droning on and on and on, and all manner of mayhem and stuff is going on around him, and he's completely clueless. But he gets to the the height, the pinnacle of what he's trying to say. And he says, marriage. Marriage is what brings us together today. And then he says, marriage, that blessed arrangement, that dream within a dream, which brings us to love, true love. And, you know, etc. And the, the movie finally ends with true love conquering all and Wesley and Buttercup literally right off into the sunset and etc. Now, in high school and college, what we were really watching this movie for was the quotable lines, come up to me later and we can, you know, quote, quote parts of this movie back and forth to each other for, you know, hours. Um, but we weren't really watching it, you know, for the romance. Um, and I'm sure, both, though, that most of you have seen some kind of romantic movie, whether it's uh, Sleepless in Seattle, which I'm really dating myself by talking about that one, or one of the Hallmark movies that I so enjoy. They all give us a certain view of love. Now, fortunately for all of you, this is not the kind of love that I'm talking about today. And this is not the kind of love that I'm talking about when I say that we need to love our body. Last week we heard from Paul, who some of you will remember, he was a former persecutor of Christians who had a radical encounter with Jesus and ended up becoming a missionary. And Paul used to travel around the the Roman Empire and he would stop in cities and he would talk to whoever would listen to him about Jesus. And, And then he would stay in those towns and cities and help them start churches 
And then eventually he would have to move on, and, but he would, he would hear how those churches were doing. He would get reports back from other people, and so then he would write letters back to these churches to encourage them and to um, keep teaching them things. Um, or, and I told you that this particular letter to the church in Corinth was kind of like a little bit of a slap on the back of the head saying, you kind of, come on, you got you to get it together because this church was, was struggling with some things and Paul really wanted them to learn what they needed to know to how to live together in community with each other and to be, um, to be a body and to work together. And so this week, Paul is actually continuing with his instructions to that church in Corinth. And the passage that we're talking about today is probably one of the most well-known passages in the New Testament. There have been songs written about it. In fact, the song that we just sang, part of that chorus comes directly, directly from this passage. And I could sing you several others, but I'm not going to. Um, The problem is that these words are most often used to talk about marriage. And while these words certainly do apply to marriage, they don't just apply to marriage. They apply to everyone in the church body. And Paul was continuing to teach the church in Corinth how to live in community with each other. And he had just, he just finished giving a list of specific gifts that make up the body. And then he tells the church that they should desire the gifts that are the most helpful. But then he continues and he says, but now let me show you a way of life that is best of all. In other words, pay attention and listen because this is the way that the church should be. And then he goes on and he says, If I could speak in the languages of earth and of angels, but didn't love others, I would only be a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I had the gift of prophecy, and if I understood all of God's secret plans and possessed all knowledge, and if I had such faith that I could move mountains, but didn't love others, I would be nothing. If I gave everything I have to the poor and even sacrificed my body, I could boast about it. But if I didn't love others, I would have gained nothing. And I'm sure now at this point that the church was saying, now hold on a minute. You just told us that we should desire these gifts, and now you're telling us that these gifts are worthless? Yep, pretty much. The gift of languages or speaking in tongues was highly sought after in the church. And Paul was saying to have and use this gift without loving was the equivalent to obnoxious noise and pagan worship. See, they used to use gongs and cymbals in the temples at the time to try and wake the gods up and to worship them. And Paul was saying, if you're just using languages and tongues without love, that's the equivalent to what you're doing. You're just making a lot of noise. To preach or to prophesy or to be full of intellectual knowledge or even to have great faith without love is worthless to the body. Gifts without love are worthless to the body. So what does it look like to love our bodies? 
Well, Paul tells us what love is. Love is patient and kind. Do you find it interesting that he starts right out with patience? When the word for patience is used in the New Testament, it is always used. When this particular word is used, it is always used to describe patience with people, not circumstances. He's not talking about patience in traffic. He's not talking about patience with your computer. He's talking about patience with people. This is also the word that is used to describe God's attitude toward us. And I don't know why, but patience always seems the most challenging for me, and I suspect it is challenging for many of you. If you're a parent, I'm sure that you've had your patience tested a time or two, or 50,000. I mean, I even, moment of confession, I even lost patience with my six-month-old baby this week and yelled at him, like yelled at him. He just smiled at me, like, I love you, mommy. I don't care if you're yelling at me. And I was like, you need to eat. Stop smiling at me and eat. And he's just like, and then through my mind, thank you, Lord, go these words, love is patient. And I was like, oh, seriously. This kind of patience has the power to act and to seek revenge, but instead, it does not. When we deal with others, we are to show them the same patience that God has shown us. Love is kind. An ancient church father described this love as being sweet to all. Unfortunately, believers are not often known for their kindness. Instead, we are known with being more concerned about being right. The church is known for our hatred of abortion instead of our love and compassion and grace toward women who are hurting. Even in the church, we are more often critical of each other than we are kind. To be kind is to love without exception. How many times have you said, I love, insert whoever's name here, I love Jeannie, but... And then, after we say the word but, we rattle off all the things that that person does wrong or that annoy us about that person or that are those persons like glaring faults. And we think that if we say, I love them first, then that makes it okay. It's kind of like, um, <laughs> it kind of, it's kind of like in the South where they like to say, bless your heart or bless her heart. That person can't, ca- that, that girl can't carry a tune in a bucket, bless her heart. Or <laughs> that That person has a face only a mother could love, bless his heart. And, you know, they think that it makes any any insult sound good as long as they put bless your heart in front of it. Well, guess what? That's not love, and that's not how it works. How would it feel? How would it make you feel to have somebody say, I love you, but, and then list every single thing that, is a problem with you that you know about. You know you have these faults. 
You don't need someone else to, you know, tell you that you have them. And I, I have been the chief culprit of doing this, but a couple years ago, I all of a sudden realized what I was doing. And I stopped and I was like, wait a minute. That's not loving. That's not kind. And I'm not talking about constructive criticism here. I'm talking about destructive criticism. We must love without exception. In other words, no buts. Paul then goes on and he tells us more about love. Love is not jealous or boastful or proud or rude. It does not demand its own way. Now, jealousy is a really hard thing for us to avoid as humans. I mean, it's just, we're human, and we look at others with what they have or their skills or their talents, and we think, well, I wish, you know, I wish I had that. But where jealousy gets us in trouble is when we start to look at other people and wish that they didn't have those things or wish destruction on them because they had those things because we so want those things for ourselves. In fact, we start wishing for bad things for the other person because we're so jealous. And then we're no longer content. And that leads to bitterness and anger. Now, love is not boastful or proud or rude. Another way to phrase this is to say that love is humble and gracious. Love doesn't have an exaggerated view of its own importance. It's impossible, impossible for me to love others the way I should if I'm always thinking about how great and wonderful I am and if I'm constantly looking for ways to tell other people how great and wonderful I am. When love becomes all about me, and making myself feel better, it's no longer love. I mean, I know, I know that I am fabulous in every way, but I should let you all discover that for yourselves without me having to tell you, right? I mean, I know most of you already have discovered this. I'm obviously just kidding. Um, but here's the other thing, love, man, Paul really gets us. Love does not demand its own way. If I act like a child and throw a temper tantrum when I don't get my own way, that is not love. Love is considering that there may be more than one way to do something. Love is considering that other people's way of doing something is just as valid as the way that I do it. The minute that we start to demand our way, things once again become all about us and not about love. And a church that is full of people that demand their own way is never going to survive. Love is thinking of the other person and, is, and welcoming as many voices as possible to the table. Then Paul continues to describe love, and he says, it is not irritable, and it keeps no record of being wronged. Man, seriously, love is not irritable? But what about when I haven't gotten enough sleep, and I'm trying to write my message, and my kids keep constantly fighting with each other, and then coming and asking me for food? 
I fed them once in the morning. Why can't that be good enough? Obviously, I'm kidding again. It's okay to laugh. I promise I feed them more than once a day. Or I put snacks where they can reach them. <laughs> and what about when I've asked someone to do something and they never get back to me or they just never do it? There are so many things that make me irritable. So many. Ask my husband. But love is not reacting with irritation, but instead taking a deep breath and responding with grace. Love keeps no record of being wronged. When Paul talks about keeping no record here, he's actually using a Greek word that's an accounting term. Now, he's actually, it's the word that they used for entering and writing down an item in a ledger so that it would never be forgotten. It was there permanently. Now, some of you know that I'm married to an accountant, and so I know a few things now about ledgers. In fact, we actually have a spreadsheet on our computer where we enter all our receipts, and we enter our, we start off at the top with our monthly, our monthly budget, and then we put in all our expenses, and then every time I go and spend money, I enter that receipt and the amount I spent and deduct it. So we know every, where all of our money has gone. We know what bills we've paid, what bills we need to pay, um, what bills are lost in the mail, um, etc. We know, and we have those things saved several years back. So if I wanted to, I could go back to 2016 and look up and see what I spent in the month of June. It's there permanently. Permanently. It's our family ledger. But what Paul is saying here is that we cannot treat people the same way that we treat our finances. When someone wrongs us in some way, whether it's intentional or unintentional, we are not to get, up, get on our computer, open up our spreadsheet, type in their name, and then type in the wrong. Now, when I put it in those terms, it sounds ridiculous. But if we're honest, a lot of us do this. When someone wrongs us, we, we sort of get over it, and we say we forgive them. But whenever we see them, we remember that wrong. Unfortunately, I feel like this is a problem for a lot of people in this church and in this body. I have been the, per, I have personally experienced when somebody doesn't like a decision that's been made and we're in a meeting and they, they come back at me with every single wrong that I've ever done over the 10 years that I've been here or every single wrong that has ever been done to them by anyone in this church. I'm sorry, but that is not love. And that is not loving. That's the way people outside the church act. This is the way people inside the church act. They forget. Love is forgetful. When you come into contact with someone in the church who has wronged you, and your mind starts to concentrate on that wrong, you need to consciously close the spreadsheet in your brain and hit delete. 
Why? Because this is the way that God has loved us. In Psalm 130, the writer says, Lord, if you kept a record of our sins, who, O Lord, could ever survive? But you offer forgiveness that we might learn to fear you. If God is able to forgive and forget all the wrongs I have done to him, how can I not do the same for the members of his body? Love is forgetful. And guess what? After all that, there's even more that love is. Paul continues, it does not rejoice about injustice, but rejoices whenever the truth wins out. In other words, love doesn't find pleasure in things that are wrong. I often hear people talk a lot about karma. You know, karma is basically the belief that what goes around comes around, and if you do something wrong to me, I don't have to do anything. Eventually, something is going to come back and get you and do wrong to you the same way you did it to me, and that's karma. And we kind of like, oh, well, karma's going to get them, you know. Here's the thing. We don't believe in karma, and love doesn't rejoice when evil and injustice happens to others. Instead, love rejoices in things that are true and lovely. Finally, Paul says, love never gives up, never loses faith, is always hopeful and endures through every circumstance. When we read that love never gives up, we are reading about the kind of love that Jesus has for us. This love endures through disappointments and insults and injuries and keeps on loving. When we read that love never loses faith, Paul means that love assumes the best intentions. This is actually one of our core values as leaders here at Joliet First. When we receive an email or a phone call or a text from someone else or from from one another or from someone in the church, because we love each other and we love you, no matter what the tone, we assume the best intentions. We assume that you don't want something destructive, that you are trying to communicate with the best intentions for improving. This isn't always easy, but this is what love does. Love always has hope. Love believes that no one is beyond the restoring grace of Jesus. Love endures. And when we think about endurance here, this isn't a resigned sitting back and just waiting for something to be over. This isn't Eeyore endurance. You know Eeyore from Winnie the Pooh? Oh, well, I guess if I have to, I'll just sit here and wait it out. No. That's not what it's ta- that's not the kind of endurance it's talking about. It's talking about love faces adversity with courage and joy. 
doesn't mean that we're always happy about the adversity, but we face it with courage and joy, not resignation. The love that Paul describes to the Corinthians here is not easy. It's not a, it's not a romance movie where you know that everything's always going to work out in the end. Loving our body is hard work. It's hard work. Let's face it. People are not easy to love. I know I'm not easy to love. So how can we do it? How can we love others the way that Paul describes here in 1 Corinthians? We can only do it by being devoted followers of Jesus. Only when we surrender our rights, our rights to our feelings and allow Jesus to take over our hearts, can we love each other the 1 Corinthians way. Love like this in the church is not an option. It's a command. Jesus himself said so. And he said it like this. So now I am giving you a new commandment. Love each other. Just as I have loved you, you should love each other. Your love for one another will prove to the world that you are my disciples. Do we want people to come to our church and to meet Jesus? Yeah, it's not a rhetorical question. Thank you, Katie. Yes. The only way, the only way that that will happen is if they see the love we have for each other that is nothing like they have ever seen before. We always like to give you a challenge, and so my challenge for you is this. Love each other without exception. No buts. No more, I love Pastor Brad, but... I love Jeannie, but... Uh Uh-uh. There are no buts in love. You can put that on Facebook. You can put that on Twitter. You can quote me. There are no buts in love. Love is hard work. Love is what took Jesus to the cross for us. If you have never experienced this kind of love, I want you to know that you can today. You don't have to wait. All you have to do is surrender to Jesus and say, I cannot do this anymore. And he will come into your life and he will restore the broken pieces and he will put things back together and he will allow you to become a part of this wonderful body, his church. And he will help you to love others the way that he loves. So now this is our time to respond. 
And if those who are serving communion would come forward. By coming forward and participating in this table that Jesus has set out for us, we are saying that we, we are saying by coming forward that we are surrendered to the love of Jesus and that we are willing to do the hard work of love. Will you please pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you for your love that never fails, that never gives up, that never runs out on us, that is overwhelming and reckless toward us. We pray that you would help us to love others the way that you love us, without exception, with no buts. Thank you. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.